Hey, Tome Show listeners, it's time for Gen Con 2012, and this recording is coming to you straight from the con. That's right. We present to you here an unedited recording straight from the best four days in gaming. But be aware of what that means. We did not dictate the content. We are not censoring for language. And while our editor, Sam, will try to make the sound as good as possible, we're in a large room trying to capture as much sound as possible. So it may not be as crisp and clear as you're used to. With that said, we as always have to give credit to the folks who help us pay the bills around here, and that's Continue Magazine. It's a quarterly magazine for all sorts of gamers. Video, board, card, mini, and of course RPGs. Be sure to swing by ContinueMag.com, buy a magazine, and tell them thank you for supporting the podcast. Well, without further ado, your Gen Con 2012 recording. Whichever one it happens to be this time around. Enjoy! Welcome to the D&D Next Creating the Core panel. Uh, First, a little bit of logistics. If you have a cell phone with you, please silence it because we are recording this panel. Uh, this is a panel on, as the title suggests, creating the core of the next edition of Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, <laughs> and there. That's the signal for everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Lead by example. Yes. Uh, we will be focusing on creation of uh, the core rules, core classes, core races, etc. All the things that make up the heart of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, with me on the panel today, um, well, first I'll introduce myself. Uh, I'm Jeremy Crawford. I oversee development and editing for Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, on my right is uh, Mike Merles. Mike, tell them what you do. Uh, I am the uh, senior manager for the R&D team. Uh, I basically oversee everything about D&D, the role-playing game, uh, digital games, board games. Uh, yeah, so basically the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. He's our boss. <laughs> kind of, I guess. And, and on my left is Rodney Thompson. Rodney, what do you do? Uh, I am the lead final designer of uh, D&D Next. I also work on the board games. I design Lords of Waterdeep and uh, Dungeon Command, and I've been an RPG designer for... 11 years now. Yeah. Wow. Including work on uh, Star Wars Saga. Yeah, yeah. Which many of you the, have The lead designer of the Star Wars Saga Edition product line. All right. So, Mike, why don't you launch things for us talking about uh, the general vision for creating D&D Next? Yeah. So, um, for, first, to start with, actually, just out of curiosity, who here has downloaded the playtest materials? Just go ahead and raise your hands. Okay. So, most people are... Okay, cool. And... Uh, follow-up question, how many of you have downloaded the playtest materials that were released this week? Okay. Almost, almost the same number. So basically, uh, if you look at the playtest, this is probably something you've noticed, um, if you haven't yet. This is kind of our goal with uh, the design, is to really get D&D back to its roots, but at the same time acknowledging D&D has long history. So we really want to take D&D, boil it down to the essence of what the game is, and then look at the entire sweep of D&D's history and make sure that regardless of when you started playing or what setting you played in or how you like to play, that D&D is offering support for what you like about it. Uh, it's really about, rather than picking a, a play style or a type of campaign and saying, this is Dungeons & Dragons, it's really about saying, no, Dungeons & Dragons, the other day, it's what, it's what the players in DM make of it. Yeah, because one, one of the things that we come back to very often is that D&D has had such longevity because it appeals to so many different styles of play and so many different kinds of game groups. Uh, there are groups who love D&D who are largely 
you know, improv actors, and they spend their sessions telling intricate stories and role-playing the heck out of their characters. On, on the other extreme, there are groups where, for whom D&D is largely a tactical mini- miniatures game, and they are busting orcs' skulls and slaying dragons and taking their loot, and probably the bulk of D&D groups are you know, somewhere in the middle of that continuum. And what, what we are striving for is to embrace that entire spectrum of D&D experiences because they, are all, they have always, since first edition, been a part of what makes D&D D&D. Yeah, D&D is really, it's, it's, a, it's, a, cra- I mean, it's a game, but it's, it's something that really draws on the creativity of the people taking part in it. You could memorize all the rules to D&D but still not really get what makes D&D interesting uh, and what makes it compelling. Uh, you could follow all the rules and still not actually be playing the game. Um, the, uh, so that's kind of the thing, acknowledging that the, why the rules are part of the game, they aren't, they aren't the game. They are just a tool people use to role play. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the essence of it. The game that is D&D is the game that happens at your table. Yeah, right. So we've taken a real approach of trying to boil everything down to a very... Uh, Say small but fierce, kind of like kind of cold quarterlyus. Uh, a you know a core of rules that are fairly flexible and easy to use, and then creating a series of rules modules, uh, rules expansions uh, that you can add on to tailor to tailor the game to your taste and to the taste of your group. So you could imagine that uh, if you've seen the playtest rules, we the core combat rules don't assume that you use miniatures. But we can just go ahead and make a set of optional rules. Hey, if you're using miniatures and using a grid, or if you're using hexes, or if you want to use a tape measure in inches, here's how to convert our, our measures. Here's how to, how to make that work. The, um, you know, because again, it's just about like, how do you want to play D&D? There's no reason for us to pick the right way to play D&D, because that, again, just kind of runs counter to what D&D is. Um, anything I'm missing as far as the overview, or is there well, anything you want to chime in on? Uh, an- another big piece of this sort of big tent approach to D&D, of making room for, for all the fans of D&D through the decades, is for us to look at all of the editions of the game and, and examine what, what is really shown in each edition. You know, what has been particularly great about first edition, what sparkled in second, what was fabulous in third, and you know, what do people really groove on in fourth, and make sure that our work reflects all of those best elements. Not necessarily as a literal translation, I mean, because you all know that uh, if we literally took the, the, the rules from first and the rules from second and the rules from third and the rules from fourth and just simply stitch them together, we'd have the Frankenstein's monster of a game. So it's much more about capturing the spirit of those wonderful elements and synthesizing them in a way where they, where they live naturally together in, in a modern expression of Dungeons & Dragons. In its, again, in its great diversity. Yeah, I think one of the things that you'll see is, as we go on through the playtest, is that more and more of those things will sort of get added in. Like, imagine that this game is actually a big stew pot, or slowly adding these ingredients in. And you'll start recognizing more and more of the ingredients from various places over the years as they they come in. So it's it's a gradual process as well. I mean, and there's a lot of things that are sort of subtle and behind the scenes that uh, that are underlying that we've taken from one edition to another. So there's a there's a, a nice mix of sort of very overt things that you can see immediately. Oh, this is just like it was an exhibition, plus a mix of sort of philosophies and ideas that we've taken from those editions and added them in as well. Anything you want to say about the four classic classes? The wizard, the cleric, the rogue, the fighter. 
So what, what, what isn't there to say? So, so basically, the, uh, we've been focusing on, on the, the classic four, the, the, the four core, sort of the first four classes, you know, the first three, then, then the thief came along later. Um, so really for us, the way we kind of see it is those are the classes that almost everyone, everyone who's played D&D has been exposed to in some form. Now again, unless you've only played OD&D and never bought into the expansions and never even looked at them since 1974, those are four character classes that have been in the game. So we've been spending a lot of time on refining those. Uh, we had our first version that came out in May. Uh, if you've looked at the new playtest packet, you've seen that in response to a lot of the feedback we've gotten from playtest surveys, and just reading comments online, blogs, forum posts, all that stuff, we've made some changes. Uh, it's going to be a very iterative process as we go forward, because in some way, uh, it's really about us like uncovering the core identity of what makes D&D D&D. You know, creating, creating a fighter that everyone go, hey, that is a D&D fighter. That looks like a D&D fighter. It acts like it and plays like it. It doesn't feel like it's out of place. You could almost imagine, like, in almost any edition, if you played this fighter, it would feel like, yeah, it could fit in. You might want to, like, take certain options to make that work, but those options are there. It's not impossible. So, and hopefully it's easy. The um, races, too. You know, races are kind of interesting, because everyone, we talk a lot about classes. We've done a lot of work on the classes. Um, the races have been a little bit smoother. I mean, can you guys think of any changes we've made to the races as we've gone on? Like, well, what's either you want to talk about races and our philosophy toward them, or they've evolved a little bit. Um, we, those of you who have seen the packet, we have who knows what we have for many of the races. We have sub races, our thing we're doing right out of the gate, and that was something that was that we iterated on before we really. Yeah. Uh, put out the first packet, but mm -hmm. since the first packet, most people didn't really get a chance to interact with the, the basic race stuff. Now with this new packet that we've put out this week, you'll start seeing. I think we'll start seeing a little bit more feedback on that too. To sort of touch on something that Mike said, this idea of the iterative process is something that we developed first on the board game line, and I'll talk about that a little bit more on a panel later today. Shameless plug for later today, uh, but. This iterative process is something we really want to bring to the game, and the idea is that what we're doing, until it hits print, it's never done, right? We want to keep refining and keep refining and get more feedback and refine. So you'll see things that are in this playtest packet right now, those things will change over the course of weeks and months and what have you as more playtesting gets done. So anytime we put out new material, it's being done with the assumption that we're going to be gathering feedback and changing it. And I think that that's one of the sort of big things that's going to separate the, the process for designing and developing D&D Next from previous editions is that we want to make sure that everything we do meets with the, or like meets our goals and is meeting, the, and meeting those goals in practical play. And the only way we can do that is to put things out there, have you guys actually play them, give us feedback, refine, 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 repeat, right? And I think that's a really, like, I, I can't overstate the importance of the playtesting and the feedback, because that's the only way we can actually do refinement on, on what's being put out there. Yeah, and the, the, this refinement process, you, you're able to witness it yourselves through the public playtest packets uh, simply by looking at a class like the fighter. Um, the fighter, just as sort of a, as a design puzzle, is is a great example of us looking at all of the additions and attempting to create a version of something in the game, in this case the fighter, that will appeal to lovers of fighters from every edition. Now, all of you who are familiar with the evolution of the fighter over the years know that this is actually kind of a tricky puzzle because the fighter very early in D&D's history uh, is extremely simple. And 
Oh, I'm, I'm being uh, told to speak louder. Um, <laughs> ah, okay, good to know. Thank you. Uh, the fighter in, in earlier editions, as I was mentioning, super simple. It, it was the go-to class for a person who wanted to just pick up a sword, dash into battle, and, and hew off some goblin heads. Uh, but over time, the class has taken on uh, more and more tactical options, sort of fully flowering into the broad array of tactical options that we have in the fourth edition version of the fighter. And so the, the design puzzle for us now is to create a fighter that can morph into either of those things. Uh, a fighter that can, if a person wants it, be extremely straightforward and easy to play. Or it's essentially the pick-up-and-play class. Um, but also a fighter that can be adjusted for the person who desires more tactical choice uh, to become that more tactically oriented class. And so you're going to see a lot of fine-tuning, different pieces in the fighter. And again, I could say this about any class, but the fighter is a great example of something will be introduced, something will be toned down, something will be cranked up as we try to get just the right balance. Um, with races, going back to the race question, um, uh, right. Um, uh, sorry, Mike is, Mike is passing me notes. <laughs> Do you like me? Check yes or no. No, it's just funny because I can notice when, when, so when Jeremy was talking, he kept kind of turning and looking at me like this. And can't oh, right, right, right. So when we do the podcast, they always tell us, speak through the microphone. Right, right. I noticed your mic was kind of low and you yeah. were turning to the side. And I'm tall. Yeah. You're a big guy. So, um, so with races, as, as Rodney mentioned, you're really seeing the races in their full form for the first time this week. And this, this sub-race approach is, again, a part of our big tent approach to the game. Because sub-races in the, in the history of the game have always been around in some form or another. Uh, if, even if they haven't always been in the core version of the game, say in the player's handbook, They've always ended up appearing in our campaign settings. You know, they're, they're in Forgotten Realms, they're in Dragonlance, they're in Greyhawk. And so what we're doing right now with the races is seeing about incorporating that sub-race concept into the core game itself. Um, so that, again, people who come with all sorts of different expectations for the game can create the kind of elf they want to create, can create the kind of halfling they want to create. Um, and so we're, we're looking forward to seeing what do you think of this approach. And as with the classes, in the future packets, you are likely to see iteration. Little, little things are going to, to evolve in the races that are currently before you. Yeah, I think both the, the fighter and the, the sub-races point out an aspect of the, the design that's sort of following our goals, and that is that what we, what we really are aiming at is making sure that these, like, these two different kinds of fighters, or these two different kinds of elves, can be built using the stuff that's already in there, right? I mean, we want that complex fighter and that simple fighter to just be different options that are sitting in the fighter, as opposed to like requiring alternate rules or twistings of you know basic assumptions and things like that. Now, there will always be you know, campaign-specific things. Oh, I don't have a, uh, I don't have a sun god in my campaign, so there can't be a sun domain cleric. Well, that's fine, right? That's up to the DM with his campaign. But really, when we talk about like a variety of complexity or a variety of options or different ways of building these characters, in many ways, we're talking about options within the the base game itself 
that we want people to pick and choose from to to build that kind of character that they want. The, I'm glad you mentioned domain because the cleric uh, is another exciting design challenge uh, because the cleric, like the fighter, has gone through massive evolution uh, over the course of the game. Uh, in terms of uh, sort of mechanical detail and, and story elements that have clustered around the class. In some ways, it's gone through the most evolution. And I say this largely because of specialty priests in second edition. Um, in second edition, the cleric was, was the one of the four core classes that could essentially morph into anything uh, because of the specialty priest system. And for, for those of you who also played second edition, you know that this was really kind of awesome if you played a cleric or if you were a DM and wanted to use the cleric class as a way to express different elements of the religions in your home setting. It's good. You could do anything with the cleric. You could have you know, basically the cleric of every god behaving like its own class. Uh, in first edition, though, largely the cleric was sort of the Templar figure, wearing heavy armor and, and smiting evil and, and healing his or her allies. And, and then we've seen sort of a, a mix of those two different approaches in third edition and fourth edition. Also, the cleric has, has been the home for players who sometimes want a dash of healing ability, but otherwise want to spend a lot of their time bashing things over the head with their mace or calling down you know, divine retribution on their foes with spells like Flame Strike or uh, from 4th edition, uh, Lance of Faith, that sort of thing. On, on the other end of the extreme, the class has always attracted a segment of the audience who loves playing the dedicated healer. They, they feel fulfilled and, and feel like they're playing exactly the character they want to play if they spend their turn aiding their friends and, and knitting together their wounds and, and also blessing their allies and making them stronger. And so one of the challenges in the cleric is, again, providing options for, for a variety of cleric players. You know, there are going to be the cleric players who, who want to smite evil, heal a little bit on the side, but other people who essentially, they want to be Florence Nightingale, and, and they want to help their friends. And, and I bring that up because um, in a lot of discussion about the game, uh, the cleric is a great example of a, cleric, of a character class uh, where discussion often clusters on it and people will make claims like clerics should just be healing or clerics should all be able to bash somebody over the head and heal at the same time and the the direction that we have to take is it's far more nuanced than that because it turns out that there are people who love clerics who actually want different things from the class and and so a part of our approach with these many options that we provide is make it so that you can play the cleric you want to play and, and that philosophy extends to all of the classes. Yeah, it's a little further down the road than where we are right now, but eventually, too, we're going to want to talk about things like we've provided these options for you. And, and I think we're heading in a direction where we want to also have the DM providing new options for his players and make really DMs and players making the game their own. I mean, it's like I say, it's a little bit further down the road than where we are now, but we probably want to head in a direction where you can make the domains that you want for your campaign, or I mean, just as an example, right? Because we know that even though we can hit these sort of big archetypes that have come through the editions, 
every DM's campaign, every player has different needs, right? So there might be subtle distinctions that we don't quite hit hitting the big archetypes that we want to facilitate with with our general approach to letting the DM really and the players really get their hands dirty on making the game their own. Now, now a key piece of, of realizing this approach of having many options for players and many options for DMs is having a core system that is solid, clear, and can transfer from group to group regardless of the options that they layer on top of it. Because um, I know people have wondered, well, isn't, are all of these options going to potentially lead to essentially a bunch of different, different role-playing games? Um, and that's why it's so crucial for us to have a heavily play-tested core system, because that's the, the through line that we expect to see in every group. Um, that, that no matter what options you layer on top, you know, no matter what sorts of clerics you have in your world, no matter what cosmology you as a DM decide to use, no matter what subset of monsters you decide to use, or which magic item option we, that we have provided you decide to use, or the one you decide to create for yourself, <coughs> underneath all of that is this core system that will be common from table to table. But also for that to work, the core system needs to be light. Uh, because the heavier the core system gets, the harder it is actually to layer meaningful options on top of it. Because then, the, basically, the heavier a core set of rules gets, the more tendrils it starts wanting to have, like Cthulhu underneath everything else. And suddenly there are these rules hooks in everything, and it becomes harder and harder to have these options that we want you to be able to basically slot in and out without having to worry about, you know, oh, I suddenly took the whole game down uh, because I, I slotted in one of these options. Yeah, I like to think of the core rules of the game as sort of a translator. There's sort of certain inputs and then certain outputs, and then all of our classes and races and optional rules and everything speak to those inputs and outputs. But at the, at the center, those core rules are the same, and it's all the stuff sort of on the outside that changes. But that way, what we can do is we can sort of predict, no matter what options you're using, no matter what optional rules you're using, those all go through the same translator and have the same kind of outputs on the other side. One, one of the examples of of a piece of the game that you can cleanly um, slot in or drop out of your game and have no negative consequences, again, this depends on the style of game you want, is the, this, the feat system, uh, which in the first packet was called the theme system and is currently called the specialty system. Uh, maybe next time we'll call it the popcorn system. Um, but really, it's, it is the delivery device for feats, um, but packaging feats in a flavorful way. Like rather than picking feats piecemeal, you decide, I'm a magic user, and you get a set of feats related uh, to that specialty. Or I'm, my specialty is I'm an archer, and then you get a sequence of feats related to that. We have designed uh, that piece of the game so that if you want, say, a more first edition style experience, you can simply not use it. And you will have still what you need in your race and in your class uh, to have a complete D&D experience. It will certainly be a different experience right. Right. From, from the one that includes feats, uh, because feats add additional abilities, um, further options, both in combat and out. Uh, so again, the experience will be different, uh, but 
both experiences perfectly valid forms of Dungeons and Dragons. Did we cover the basics? Do we want to uh, go to Q and A, or is there anything else you guys want to cover before? Uh, the, the last thing I would say before we uh, open up the floor to questions is just again how valuable your playtest feedback has been already, and how valuable it will be in the months ahead. Uh, you you can already see, as we've said, uh, the the effect of your input, and you will continue to see that. And so it's. Really, just please play a ton of Dungeons and Dragons and, and, and tell us what you think. Play our game. Yeah. Uh, I actually want to jump on top of that and say uh, one of the most important things you guys can do is fill out the surveys that we do with each packet. And we'll do multiple surveys with each one because those surveys are extremely valuable to us in learning how you guys are using our stuff and what's working and what isn't. So when you guys see those surveys go up or get the email about the survey, please, please, please participate in them because they are they are probably one of the best methods we have of getting information directly from you guys that we can use. Yeah. So we have uh, two microphones uh, set up and uh, please go ahead and queue up. Yeah, well, well, let's just use the 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 front one. The mic closest to us, we're not trying to manage two cues, and just go ahead. Trevor, do you want to kind of manage the line? Did you mind doing that? Or kind of Dragoon Trevor? And, <laughs> could you give me a Coke while you're and, and, uh, and just so, and, and just in case I need to head head these sorts of questions off at the pass, um, we we will not be answering questions about product. Yeah. So so if your question is when is the game coming out or what are the products going to look like, uh, we aren't talking about that yet. Yeah. Uh, but we are happy to answer questions about the playtest form of the game. There's also one thing I want to throw out there. So as an FYI, at, uh, at the top of the hour, I have to head over to where we're having the keynote tonight. Uh, the keynote is at 7 p.m. Mm -hmm. Yes. The, um, Good job. <laughs> uh, and we're going to be covering a, a lot of the stuff uh, there. Um, it should be pretty exciting. It's over at the rooftop ballroom. It's at the... Um, the theater, it's across the street from the Hyatt, but it's on the opposite side of the Hyatt from the Convention Center. So, all right, questions? Uh, also, one other uh, bit of scheduling. Uh, we will be having another D&D Next panel tomorrow morning that focuses on the DM side of things, and uh, we will be repeating this panel on Saturday. Yeah. So we'll be here all weekend. And guys, try to, I mean, sometimes we have like 18 questions a piece. Try to limit to one question. Then get back in line. Yeah, and then, yeah, and then if there's room, yeah, please do get get back in line. Well, so you got to tire. Yeah. Dear sir, I'd like to talk to you about. Uh, I was just wondering, uh, what's what's something that you think has changed most dramatically because of feedback? The fighter. The fighter. Oh yeah. So we have an entire new subsystem of the fighter because. People, some people like having a fighter who just swings every round, and a lot of, I know the exact percentage of people who say, oh, <laughs> yes, I want to choose something different every round. Yeah. So. And, and Mike's reference to the exact percentage, it, <laughs> that might sound maybe not worthy of note, but this will be the, the version of the game backed up by the most amount of data that it has ever yeah. had. Yeah, it, it isn't just like, like people are voting for stuff, but it does, it does let us have a sense, like, this is, a great, this is actually a great example to talk about that. We didn't sort of say, hey, what mechanics should we put in? Vote for, you know, who's going to win? It's just more, we're getting a general directional sense. Right. Like, hey, this is kind of what I'm, I'm not really happy. I don't feel like I can make the character I want to play. 
hey, you're kind of taking away my character, things like that. Yeah. So this is really, really helps us directionally. Uh, I don't think we ever want to be in a position where we're like, you know, who likes word five of paragraph two, sentence yeah. eight? Okay, no. now word three, paragraph two, sentence like, and it's all like that. So, right, next question. Uh, sure. When I think about you guys talking about like you're using iterative development, you're you know getting play tests and feedback. Well, I have I thought I was thinking about this and it was like the you got the first edition, lots of feedback, and then oh well we got the next edition, and so we're kind of going through that process right now. So when the game's finally released, what can we expect that's different than previous editions that you've released where you're you know getting feedback? Oh now it's three point five, now it's this next one. And so how what can we expect? Maybe not exactly what the product will look like when it's done, but what can we expect from a support and development once it's officially released? You know, is that am I, am yeah? No, yeah. So th this is, and I'll give the an answer if it doesn't make sense. You can just yeah. So this is kind of my dream. Right? When you have an addition, there's always the errata, and there's like the .5, the .55, and all this stuff, you can get all these releases. I would love to do all that stuff before we release the game. So when the game comes out, it's, hey, it works, right? It's not like, oh, and now we have to keep iterating to actually try to get it right. Um, and that's really, again, why we're starting really simple, because one of the things we've learned, like with our board games, Castle Ravenloft and uh, with uh, Dungeon Command, our, our new minis game, when you have a game that can play fairly fast, you can play test the heck out of it internally in our department, and more importantly, like so that when you guys get to do the play test, you don't have to say, put aside eight hours to play it. But it also means everything's a lot simpler. It's much easier for us to make changes. The, um, we were just, um, I'm trying to give you an example off the top of my head, of a, of a class that we just you know, made big changes to. It only took like an hour, right, for us to do the work. And then like say, four two-hour play sessions internally to get it. Okay, this is actually working. Like we have one we can't talk about. Yeah. The oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, other stuff working. But but there is these cases where we can like say give the characters to say like people in customer service or in finance who play D and D, and you know they just read it and play it. You know, hey, this looks this works. Or like, oh, this is great. You know, it's like, oh, what did you like about it? Well, the best thing about the fighter was all those spells I could cast. You're like, oh, okay, we probably screwed that up. Right? <laughs> Something wrong here. You know. But so that's really what the emphasis has been, and hopefully we can kind of put that stuff behind us where we're not, you know, there's the old joke, right? You know, for any software, you know, if you work in software, you kind of think the competitorizing, like, you know, what the customer is our, it's our play tester, right? Like, we don't, like, we are literally doing that now, so you're not paying for it later. Right. right. And so my question was, like, how is that going to, how do you guys envision or have a vision of the, once it's released, how are you going to release D&D &D and manage and support it, and what's different than how it's been released in the previous editions, you know? A lot of that stuff we're going to kind of t touch on at the keynote tonight. Okay. We're not going to have specific products really to talk about. We're going to start giving the vision of the thing. But really what we want to be able to do is get away from emphasizing just rules and start emphasizing more role-playing and more the general, the overall thing about what makes D&D different, like creating your own campaigns. Like what Roddy was talking about, like with cleric domains, creating your own domains, things like that. The, um, and I think a lot of it will be like play style. Like you could almost imagine that under this game, if we do it right, it's very modular. If we were to do, say, a uh, cast Ravenloft, the module, that might come with the, hor the horror rules module. And they're like, okay, so if you want to run a horror D&D campaign, here's our suggested rules, you know, and it, it, it's like, okay, this is like, adds a, that makes fear more important, adds sanity or, you know, this gothic horror sense. Here's, here are the, the varying undead, like, you know, every undead creature now has a couple of these traits that make undead really scary, more like in the kind of classic horror movie sense. Or even things like, here's how your hit points work now, so characters get different numbers of hit points, you know, things like that. And I think that's where, I think that's where we can do a lot of interesting design work because I think everyone knows D&D &D and the core D&D &D and like a Greyhawk campaign or a Forgotten Realms campaign. 
And I think what we can start doing is focusing on pushing the boundaries outward rather than constantly going, here's another thing your fighter can do, and here's another way that two-weapon fighting can work, and here's a new type of bow that does more damage than the old bow. Like it's, we can kind of get out off that treadmill. Yeah, definitely a lot more focus on sort of practical applications as opposed to theoretical applications. So there's a there's a documentary, I don't know if you guys have seen it, it's called about product design, it's called Objectify. And it basically there's a statement in there which says, um, you know, don't don't design for the middle, design for the extremes, the middle will take care of itself. And you know, then you talk about how there's these two extremes, sort of extremely light, extremely loose type of DD player, and then the extremely super tactical, super mini focus. Well, we have fourth edition, we have old school clones, retro clones. So, and people certainly seem to have been flocking to that or backing their horse and saying, I'm going to stick with four, but I'm going to play ODD, three Bravo. So, what is going to make someone who's already in an established Pathfinder game or fourth edition game or ODD game say, I'm going to switch to next? Yeah, I think it goes along with what you just talked about, right. where we are really are designing to those extremes. You know, we're going to build the really slim down you know, version of the game where it is just the bare minimum. And then we're also going to circle around and give you everything, right? It's like you know the old old country buffet, like it's every it's here. You know, if a human can eat it, we have it, right? Uh, <laughs> and then some. Right? If you want to eat the silverware, go for it, right? The, uh, and then I, I think that's what's going to make this this version of D and D really different. Is it truly is that middle? You're going to find your own middle, and you're going to start either from that really bare bones, and then go through the entire. You know, you can think that it's the skeleton versus the zombie, right? Like, where do you want to rest? within that spectrum, and I don't, if you look back on D&D, I don't think D&Ds have ever done that before. Each edition, knowingly or not, has kind of picked a play style. You know, like, with, with fourth, was very conscious decision for the play style. Third was very, like, uh, sim, based on, we want to give you comprehensive rules. First kind of had a play style fall out of it, you know, based on Gary playing the game and, and everyone else just, you know, playing the game they wanted to. So this is, I think, the first version of D&D that's been consciously built from the beginning to cater to where you want to rest on, on that continuum, rather than take a game There'll always be house rules, rather than trying to figure out, well, how does the core work? Really, how can I house rule this? How can I make this my own? And maybe running into problems with it. We're, we're building almost kind of like a, like a platform, you know, like it's, you know, where we know people are going to modify it. And when I see people, like, talk about how they're already hacking the game, that makes you super happy. Because I want this to be, like, the most hackable version of D&D ever released. And, that, and I think that that is our big mechanics. That is our big difference. And, and and in spirit, I would say it is closest to first edition. In detail, it will you know you'll look at the first edition books and look at these books, and it will be wildly different. But in spirit, in terms of how people experience the game, it will be most like that. And the reason why I say that is the first edition books are extremely detail-rich, and I'm, I'm choosing my words diplomatically. I happen to love a lot of that detail, but I know it, it, it was off-putting for many people. But back in the day when first edition was so popular, part of the reason it was so popular is that many groups who didn't want all that detail and surprise rules that were nearly incomprehensible, and if you, if you have a first edition DMG, trust me, take a look at those surprise rules if you want to just shatter your brain for the afternoon. <laughs> it, it's, they, they, they are fantastic um, and incomprehensible. Um, but there are people who still loved the game because they would just house rule out all of that material, or sometimes just not even consciously house rule it out. They would just ignore it and created a much more free form sort of theater of the mind style of the game. So 
just naturally first edition catered to these two extremes. There were people who followed you know, speed factor and all of these very precise rules and used minis and you know, had their measuring tape out and were using hexes. And then you also had people playing first edition where they used hardly any rules at all and it was largely improvisational acting. And, and so this is just another way of saying that, yeah, absolutely, it's, it's those extremes we care about. Um, because the game has already gone down the path of picking a point somewhere in the middle and just pegging the game at that point. And that leads to fragmentation. And, and so we're far more interested in, again, embracing the, the huge richness that is D&D. Yeah, the funny thing is, it's not really a spectrum in my mind. It's actually a big circle, right? And like, there's like, oh, I really love Peter Mind style play, and I really love, you know, playing with minis. There's also like, oh, I really love, you know, super intense role playing, and I also love, you know, all this exploration. And so there's all these sort of extremes of different spectrums and things. And we want to make sure that we can hit uh, that sort of the Venn diagram of all these things over, overlapping to find your game is somewhere somewhere in this circle. Do you see like the ideal D&D is being like right in the middle of game as an Oh yeah, I think it's the way it's always been. I think that's I think that those those labels kind of arose from people just sort of trying to because like, D&D is always d and if, if you're like I, someone wrote this online, I forget who it was, but like, if, if your theory of RPGs is not broken by D&D, it's not, like, it doesn't work. <laughs> like, D&D always breaks those theories. Because yeah, I think it is, I think D&D is the one game that really, well, there are other games that do this, but it really embraces the idea of you're going to make of it what you will. So. Hi, yeah. um, uh, fourth edition uh, was built, at least it appeared to be built with a kind of emphasis on character balance, like trying to, no matter what somebody throws together to make a character, they're all going to have a good time over to be fine. You know, despite you know, those feet obsolescence and there's like, you just make really horrible choices, but still you're going to make a playable character. Are you using that uh, design principle at all, or are you just kind of throwing it out the window being like, no, it's okay that it's a week at first and great at point? It's a little bit mixed. So one of the things we wanted to make sure was that um, if you were playing D&D for the first time as a first level character, you came away, uh, let's just say a typical DM just using the core rules. You came away thinking, hey, this is D&D, it's the game where I explore dungeons and like, fantasy adventures. We, we wanted to make sure the classes weren't so different. Uh, like, look at the wizard now, he has at spells. We are like, oh, I'm a wizard because I want to be a guy who uses magic, oh, but I'm not, I have one spell. And once I use it, I'm not really a wizard anymore, I'm just a crossbowman or a guy throwing darts or knives. So, <laughs> the, um, even though darts are off, there are three shots per round in AD&D, they're awesome. The, uh, <laughs> but man, you had to carry so many darts. <laughs> just go get them, I'd be so, so we are kind of bringing the power, the power bands clo- uh, closer together. But what we also want to be able to do is say, hey, if you're playing a wizard and you want to be an illusionist, like you're not doing any damage, you're just kind of tricking people, or you, you know, you're just you want to be the really deceptive guy who can like charm people and get away with, you know, being like the slob kind of manipulative guy. You can do that. The um, really kind of focus on that we have this idea of, like the three pillars of D and D, like interacting with NPCs, exploring uh, weird locations, and, and fighting monsters. And letting players go, hey, I'm going to make a wizard, and I get to kind of pick my guy's specialty. Like, what do I like about D&D? Where do I want to settle my interests on? Now, some classes like the fighter is just always going to be good at fighting, uh, hence the name. But the, uh, <laughs> but even within like our background system, we're like we don't we we remove skillless from the, the the character classes. Any class can take any skill now, you know. So it's hey, you can you can really do. I want to be the fighter who's a real inspiring leader. I can just I can take I can take a high charisma and take those skills. The um, so that's a kind of a, that's part of it. 
Um, so instead of necessarily scripting out what people can do, we're moving away from that aspect of fourth edition. But we are keeping this idea of we want players to feel like more, not that, oh, my character is just strictly weaker than yours, but more, oh, my character does different things. Because I'm casting spells and you're a warrior or you're a rogue. So. And, and, and in particular areas of the game, like when it comes to damage output, uh, we have the same kind of rigorous mathematical approach that we have applied in fourth edition. Uh, but as Mike said, the key is we want to make sure that each class is first and foremost what it needs to be to be the best expression of itself. We want the wizard to feel totally wizardly. Yeah. We want the fighter to be the most fighty. Yeah. But, um, but, but we also, in some ways, damage is kind of fake, right? It's, it's kind of our best guess for just, but that's not really like, right. you know, because if you just take charm, you can take an illusion spell and do far more damage, you know, right. by breaking the adventure with it than just blowing someone up with a fireball. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because the, the danger of, of following a notion of balance too dogmatically is that balance very quickly, if you're not careful, morphs not into balance, but into symmetry, which isn't actually the same thing. And that kind of balance at its worst makes everything identical. And, and you'll, you'll see this sometimes in games where it's like, well, the name of what my wizard is doing is different from the name of what the fighter is doing, but if I look at the effects, they're exactly the same thing. And we feel that in a class-based game, a class should actually have something that it does that other classes don't do. Yeah. Uh, because that is a part of the genius of the class-based design that's been in D&D from the beginning. And that is, when you pick a, a class, in a way you are picking a new game experience. We want it to be so that when you're playing a cleric, you feel like you're playing a slightly different game than when you're playing a rogue. Oh, you're playing a different role, right? Yeah. In the acting sense, right? You are a different person. Right. So, exactly. That's where the root of it. Yeah, I'd like to say one more thing about the sort of balance idea. In general, we have sort of, imagine we have like a target, right? And we're aiming at that target as sort of the center of what each character class is going to be doing. And that's pretty similar through across the classes. But in general, I would say we also can accept a little more variance in either direction as far as, like, like Mike was saying, like we think it's okay if you want to focus on illusions and maybe your damage is a little bit lower. And like, you know, that's still sort of around our target, but it's not right dead center in our target. But the big thing is we want to make sure you're making a conscious choice to, to choose those illusion spells or what have you, as opposed to sort of accidentally stumbling into a character that you didn't really want to play or a character that you feel is ineffective. It should be something you're, you're willfully choosing to do. Yeah. But we, we absolutely don't want to do is say things like, oh, if you want to be, really, be a really good archer, you should play, you know, and then give you horrible advice, like, play a cleric who has a sling, right? And, and that's just like, oh, that's, that's thanks, right? Thanks, book. I didn't need, you know, I'm now a terrible character, right? So, the, uh, anyways, next question. So this may be a little bit farther ahead of where you're at in you know, development, but you know I love the kind of paper role playing games, but so much lately it's been just as easy and just as interesting with all the tools that the Insider had. You know, I love the character building before some of the changes that weren't as popular, but with the new edition of D&D being so wide encompassing and a huge part of it you're trying to bring back, even though we can still do the fourth edition, is the homebrewing. I mean, you know, all the different changes and things like that. It was extremely hard in previous things for the character builder, for example, to do homebrew stuff. You have you know, groups that, in my college group now, we're on all ends of the state, or even ends of the country, so we're doing a lot more stuff online. Via map tool or things along those lines. Um, 
even at the tables, you know, I walk through the game things and everybody has iPads out with the PDFs of manuals on there, you know, and basically pretty much what they can do so you don't have to add a bottle of ibuprofen to your dice bag preparing the backpack full of books. And so I'm curious on where is next going to go since so much homebrewing, so much um, user input and changes on those kind of tools for online and just the availability to, again, play the game how you want to play it. Yeah, so we definitely want to have tools available. We don't really have details now to talk about. But this does go back to the overall philosophy, since we are building from the, the start, assuming we have a simple core that you can kind of scale up what rules you want to use, that naturally dovetails nicely into house ruling. Because essentially, if you decide, hey, I want to use the miniatures rules, that's kind of like a house rule. It's such a house rule we've given to you. So we already have that infrastructure in place from the start when we're planning out things that can account for that kind of thing. Now, I don't have any details on like how we might exactly implement that, but we, we know that that's what we want to be possible in D&D and on all aspects of the role-playing game. So regardless of how you're interacting with it, you have a sense, say, the DM's kind of is setting the table rules for this campaign. It's kind of like you're playing poker at someone's house. Hey, this is how we're going to play. The, um, and we wouldn't want something that we see, hey, this is really important the RPG, and we think it's a really cool thing people would like. Oh, and it actually doesn't do what people want to do with the game. I, I think that's just a, a re that, that just makes people unhappy. So, does that kind of answer what you... Yeah, it, it was it's just kind of curious because that's one of the biggest problems, with, and especially, you know, I enjoyed the D&D Insider tools, but they were horrible if you wanted to try to homebrew something. Yeah, exactly. Thing. And now I was kind of curious on how you're trying to fix yeah. that for 5th edition. So, yeah, so we don't have any technical specific things, but we gotta get, since we know we're building the system that way, we kind of already have a solve for that anyway. So And, and, and again, even something I can add, because it, it's not specifically about digital products that we can't yet talk about, um, one of, one of the reasons why you see that in the tools we have now is the tools are built to support a different philosophy. Um, Forth has a very conscious philosophy that everything published for the game is core. Uh, and that, that has a lot of ramifications. So you know, if something is published for the game, it is considered to be an official part of the game. Uh, that is not going to be an assumption of ours uh, for the next edition. Well, it's, I think it's the op we have the yeah. opposite assumption. Like the Ravenloft example, we don't assume everyone's using the horror rules. So. Right. And so that, that change of assumption alone uh, will naturally lead to very different tools. Um, all previous versions of D&D have run pretty well at low levels, including next, including fourth and all three. Uh, and I'd say all of them break down when you start to get to high levels. What do you plan to do to ensure that high level play runs well in next? So first thing is we're going to play test the heck out of it. So I mean, it's, and you'll have, but, we haven't seen it yet. Yeah, we haven't seen it, so it's definitely something we've been, I don't know, maybe uh, one of you guys wants to talk a little bit about this, but that, that's, I think the first step is going to be, you know, because I remember when I play tested uh, 3.0, it was like, oh great, like, and I think the way we play test, play test is we're like how other people play test it. Hey, let's make up some first level characters. Great, let's start playing, kind of like it's campaign. And then around third level, you're either like, oh, we missed a few sessions, or hey, the game's coming out next month, so why are we play testing? Oh, you know, whatever. Like, like you just didn't have time. Right. So it's one of the nice things about having this kind of directed play test. Like, 
and 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 in some ways, you guys, have been, it's been great that you sort of uh, were able to bear with us. Like, you know, the first packet, we just had pre-gens. You couldn't make characters, and now you can make characters. That's very conscious. Uh, that's a very conscious decision on our part. Now, you can rest assured that when we do start showing you stuff above 10th level, it's going to start with pre-gens. It's going to start with an adventure, because we're going to want to make sure, hey, this is kind of where we're going to start, and then we'll grow out from there, because we really want to kick the tires in the system yeah. and not let big, like, half the game go untouched. Yeah, so. this, is, this is a very methodical process. So... In a way, you can kind of extrapolate where this is going time-wise, given what you've seen so far. Um, to, to answer the question about high level specifically, one of the things that I think we've already laid the groundwork for a, a better high-level experience is in our what we call our bounded accuracy system. Right? We've changed the way that some of our numbers scale up and focus more on sort of damage and, and hit points as our primary scaling mechanism. That alone puts a lot of tools in the DM's toolbox that he didn't necessarily have before. Because as the players gain levels, the DM just has a larger and larger pool of resources to draw on for designing adventures, right? You can still use orcs at 12th level because you know that those orcs in sufficient numbers can be a decent threat to your, your players and everything, right? So that's, that's one element that we've already laid the groundwork for. Uh, and then as we go on, we're looking at uh, high-level play as a a big problem to be solved. And so, I mean, it's it's one of those things that every edition has had uh, its ups and downs with. And so, I think that we want to make sure that high-level high play is one of those areas that uh, I would call a, a tricky problem, just like the the fighter was that Jeremy said. We want to spend a lot of time focusing on and a lot of effort to fix. Good. Because quite frankly, it, it is a piece of the game that has never, in the core of the game, received its own design attention. Now, to be clear, lots of design has been lavished on high-level D&D play. You know, there are high-level spells, high-level monsters, you know, classes that go up to 20 and then in fourth up to 30. But the reason why I say nothing has, there's never been in the core of the game design attention lavished on high level play sort of as a subsystem. And for the first time, we're doing that. We are, we are questioning all of the assumptions about high level play. Uh, because really, in the past, all high level play is levels one through 10 cranked up. And that is, that is a core assumption that we. Have sh we have shown the eye of Sauron on, and and that means that what you what you end up seeing is likely to be fairly dramatic, um, because it one of the things we take very seriously is that thing that has been true in every edition of the game is that for the majority of groups the core D and D experience is levels one through ten, and groups that play above level ten are the outlier, and there are many groups that do it and they love it, but. That's always been a different kind of experience uh, for very particular groups. And so we want to take it seriously that it is a different kind of experience. Yeah, I think we really want to embrace that. Yeah. And the, the other thing, too, it's, it's easy to forget that high-level play has also been a, a piece of the game that has always been in kind of crazy flux. Because in first edition, certain classes went no higher than level 13. Um, you know, I think many of us assume sort of this received wisdom. Oh, the games always had 20 levels. No, actually, there were classes that hit 13 and they were done. Yeah. Um, and and then over time, 20 sort of became the cap, and then in fourth, 30 became the cap. Um, with with although in third there was then you know the epic level handbook where you could go to infinity. Um, 
so it, again, it's a piece of the game that has always had a softness to it, to, to the design. And, and that is something we are hitting head on. Next question. You guys say you're going to focus in a lot on choices for the players and all that. Now I'm a GM and I've run an RPGA and all that stuff. Every GM I've ever encountered ran into the same problem. Half of them would have to look at the card the player handed them because it's a card game now in fourth edition. You know? And we are totally lost half the time. We have to get a degree in order to know all of those little cards. Mm -hmm. How are they going to fix that? It's, that's tough. So one of the first things, as far as when we think about the DM's role, and what I imagine we'll have at some point now in the sort of how to start your campaign would be like, well, what classes are you going to allow? You know, really thinking of it as the DM is making a campaign, it's similar to the way a, a player might make a character. Like, you're going to think, hey, how do I want this campaign to work? You know, what's important in my world? What classes exist? What races are available? Specifically for organized play, um, what we'll probably do is when we look at all the rules, and again, this is, hasn't been decided, but we sort of say, uh, kind of like you think of like uh, any game that has a competitive tournament scene like Warhammer or Magic, they kind of have like their table rules, like, hey, here's what's legal to play here. Uh, we'll probably look at doing something like that, where like, just to keep, so DMs don't go crazy, they're sort of like, hey, here's the, the list of spells you can choose. Like, you can make a character, you can choose whatever you want, but if you want to play an OP in the official OP system, here are the spells, here are the yeah. abilities. And Wouldn't that actually make it worse? Because then I'd definitely have to read all those little cards to well, decide which ones I want to allow, right? Well, this is one of the things we want also on top of that, is most of the character classes now, like spell casters will still have fairly discreet, like, hey, I'm a wizard, I have this thing. If you look at what we've done so far with things like the rogue and the fighter, you're kind of seeing a lot of options there, but I don't really foresee those options growing much beyond things that are like two-weapon fighting, archery, you know, shield mastery. Like, we don't want to get back into the mode of like, oh, my fighter's really good with like the tonfa, and I have like the three banana school of fighting. Like, you don't even know what the hell that is, right? And so you're kind of stuck as a DM trying to guess what does this actually mean. We really want to kind of keep, we want to keep it focused on things that are iconic, that if we invent a, a here's how you get better at archery, we don't want to then make three other ways you can get better at archery. You just want to say, look, here's archery, here's what an archer does, and that's done. Getting again, getting off that treadmill of having to constantly put out more feats and powers and special abilities, and focus instead more on campaigns. Yeah, you know, if, if you're changing your characters because, well, I'm playing Dark Sun, and in Dark Sun, here are the special options I can choose, or here's the different way that armor works, you know, things like that. Where and, and where you, like in Dark Sun, you probably would see some new feats and spells and whatnot, but that's because they would be filling a narrative niche that the existing feats and spells were not filling. Uh, what, we, what Mike is getting at is what we don't want to see is, well, here's basically the same thing, but with a different name. Yeah. Um, you know, no, if we, if we want a spellcaster to cast Fireball or something like it, we'll give them Fireball and we're done. Yeah. Um, and, and this is one, one of the reasons you, you're seeing the return of a common spell list. Uh, this is something we moved away from in 4th edition and that we're returning to. Uh, there is a genius in the common spell list, going back to the earliest editions of the game, in that they create not only pieces that a DM can use to build a world, because you suddenly you have this common lexicon. You know, this is what wizards do, this is what clerics do, and oh, look, there's overlap because they have some, they have some magic effects that are the same. But that common list also helps gameplay at the table tremendously because 
it means that after a while, everybody knows what Fireball does. After a while, everybody knows what Charm Person does. And it isn't suddenly, oh my god, I don't even know what that power is that you just yeah. used. I'll take your, you know, I, I'm often this way as a DM. I'll take your word for it on what it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that that's about getting back to the iconic identity of what D&D is and what magic in D&D does. You know, and making sure that it feels like, oh yeah, this is D&D. This is resonant. I know what this is. I'm not constantly trying to figure out what you're, you know, I kind of like to use the joke of like you're playing like a shard mind dampier, you know, hybrid rune priest seeker. Like, what is that, right? Like, you could even, a lot of people have no idea. So, thank you. It's legal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is in some states. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, D&D Next is going to be an amalgamation of all previous editions. How is that going to be reflected in the pantheon of D&Ds for the board game? Oh, for the D&Ds? So, um, one of the things I'd really like to be able to do, and this is still kind of a question mark, is just make sure that the, um, you can imagine, for example, taking, say, the top three or four settings and taking the top four or five gods and making sure that those are available. Because we know people are playing different, different campaign settings and making sure that hey, you know, we can give you the kind of like god of war, some like or a god of you know whatever uh, exploring dungeons and killing kobolds, but you know give you some generic ones. But then make sure because one of the nice things again when we go back to our simpler system is it doesn't take a ton of work for us to make a, a new domain. We can focus instead on hey, what's Saint Cuthbert like? What's his story? Okay, he hates Ayu. So hey, if you're playing Saint Cuthbert, we know you're playing Greyhawks. So we can give you a special ability against cultists of Ayus, right? Because it's cool, right? Because that would make sense, right? Or something like that. So it'd be a lot more specific because it's not going to take as much work to get that done. Question here. I was just wondering. I was just wondering how locked into the medieval fantasy is next going to be? Because perhaps. Uh, we like Animal World or something in my group, and I want to use Next's uh, edition rules for, say, Gavin World. Uh, is that possible? Would it be done? So one of the things, this is kind of like a secret design goal. Like, we don't really, like, go, oh, hey, this is, you know, when, when people, like, the people who are paying us say, so what are you working on this month? We don't tell them, hey, this is what we're doing. Like, we, we're working on D&D. But the, but now, things, but now it's being caught on tape. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, right? Turn off the, no more mics, right? No, but... <laughs> For me, personally, as a designer, I think we're on the right track when I look at the system, especially the core system. And I think, you know what, if I just took these character classes out and I put in a system for building a superhero, or if I gave you, like, hey, like kind of like the Omega World uh, version of D20 that came out, or even the version we just did, so hey, I have a mutant and I can add mutant powers. Am I being too loud again? Sorry. Apparently, I I'm now having microphone malfunctions here. You guys tell me just shove it back. They'll just do it. Just, yeah, just throw something the, uh, And actually, this is the last question I can answer because i got to head over to, the, uh, to practice for the keynote. But So this is kind of like the, one of the secret agendas for me, because I think this is a sign of a good RPG system, is when you look at it, you realize, hey, just like you can add these different modules for fantasy, you can go the other way and go, hey, well, this is how I think a superhero system would work. This is how you can add mutations and ray guns and robots and death rays. And, and this is like my secret thing is I always think, how would I run Star Frontiers with this, right? And that's always, because that's the second RPG I ever played. So I'm always like, okay, how would Jalassites work and things like that? Because yeah. so, we, we want you to be kit bashing with yeah. And that's definitely, I think, something which, yeah, I think a great RPG system, especially if you're a tinker, you look at it and you think, like, oh, here's how I want to mess with the system to do something different. But, but to get back also to, to the start of your question, the core assumptions of the game are definitely uh, fantasy. Yeah. And, and specifically, the, 
the amalgamation that is at the heart of D&D of, of sword and sorcery elements and high fantasy elements. Because D&D is this, as many of you know, is this kind of bizarre hybrid between two versions of fantasy that aren't actually always that compatible, but that's part of the magic of Dungeons yeah. & Dragons. D&D is Tolkien, where they get the ring and think, well... Gandalf should have the ring, and then Gandalf takes the ring and goes and destroys Sauron. <laughs> and that's how that ends, because hey, now he's level 20, and then maybe he turns easy. Those are the Lord of the Rings that rocks! Yeah. <laughs> cool, so I have to run, so thanks a lot for your questions, everybody. And again, we have a panel tomorrow at 10 a.m. here, um, and then another one 1 p.m. on Saturday in the same room. So and hopefully if you guys can make it up to the keynote tonight, I think it should be pretty interesting. But, but so. we are uh, continuing uh, to yeah. take your questions. Yeah, we still have these guys another hour. We're just losing Mike. And you can ask him, oh, what, what is Mike Merle's really like, right? <laughs> <That's insane. laughs> Thanks, everybody. Okay, good. He didn't break his legs. Mike's <laughs> <laughs> actually getting ready to get in line for a question. <laughs> He's going to go next door, put on a different shirt, and, and start punking us with questions. Uh, next question. existing editions of D&D. Now, there, it's, it's hard for me to give you specific examples because it'll be like, we're having a conversation about the fire, and I'll be like, oh yeah, I saw that this guy on RPG Net was talking about a cool thing he did with the fighters in his campaign. And so, I mean, yeah, we do that kind of stuff all the time, right? right. But being able right. to point to a specific person or blog or whatever like that is a little bit tougher because we're out there gathering all this information and reading all this feedback and stuff like that, and it just becomes this big pile of mush in our brains that eventually forms together to, to, to guide our, our actions up to this point. So when we talk about specific inspirations, largely we're talking about previous iterations of D&D, old campaign settings, and adventures. I mean, I, I would say adventure experience is something that really drives us. Yeah. And and also, we all play a ton of other games. I mean, we play a ton of board games, we play a ton of video games, we play other role-playing games. And so we obviously are you know, unavoidably being inspired by all of these different things you know, flowing into the pool. You know, most recently when it comes to other RPGs, I've been really enjoying reading through Dungeon Crawl Classics and the Mouse Guard RPG. Um, and you know, neither of those has like specifically inspired anything, but it's simply inspiring to see how other designers are realizing their goals in a role-playing game system. Quick question: um, With the encounters program you got in Layer Cells, so how do you are you going to incorporate like D&D next into it, or is it just going to be standalone, and just stay fourth edition? So just, I was wondering. Uh, that's a bit too far in the future okay. for us to give a definite answer to. Um, I, I, we certainly hope that 
the encounter system will continue for for many years to come. And 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 as we shift over to the new edition, then you know, assuming that that program is still going, it would shift over as well. Okay. Well, Oregon is supposed to be part of the D and D community, right? So we want to make sure that all the different varieties of organized play get some kind of attention. Yeah. It's yeah. just a little too early to make any decisions. Yeah, because the only thing we're sure of is organized play, yes. Um, <laughs> you know, the, but the, the, the precise form, um, we still have a lot of decisions to make. Yeah. Okay. Awesome, thanks. When you guys are uh, designing what I would call social feats, um, mm-hmm. what sort of balance thoughts go through your head when you're trying to realize that, you know, hey, I'm taking this rather than taking something that has a definite, obvious use in combat. So, for instance, you know, hey, a thief might have a feat of talk your way out of jail. I mean, take your pick, but how, how do you actually conceptualize that when you're designing a, a social feat? There's a little bit of siloing that already takes place in the game, and this is getting a little bit more down to the weeds on the actual design, but there's a little bit of siloing that takes place in that we, in general, tend to uh, look at like our background system with traits and, and skills as a really big way of delivering a lot of the, the stuff you want to see in the, the role-playing and interaction of the game, right? So when it comes to like the specialties and the feats, a lot of those are leaning more on the combat pillar and, and leaning a little bit more on the uh, exploration pillar as well. Uh, in general, we've tried to design, and Jeremy actually touched on this earlier when he talked about how like the specialty system could be pulled out whole. We try to design uh, even our, our sort of combat focused things so that they are more lateral options as opposed to like straight up power increases, right? And one of the things that allows us to do is, it, I talked about the sort of variance uh, from our target, right? What, one of the things that allows us to do is if someone wants to take that, let's say, more exploration focused feat or that more social focused feat, they're not putting themselves at a big deficiency compared to the guy that took the combat feat. So yeah, the guy that took the combat feat's got more options, he's got more things he can do, uh, uh, and you know there is a, a slight power upgrade, but it's not this very pronounced jump. It's not like you know, okay, well, I do five more points of damage every round because I took this combat feat, and now the other guy is just like, well, I'm out of the, you know, I'm, I'm out of luck, right? There's there's a smaller amount of variance there, so that allows us to sort of look at it and say, well, you know what, this guy, this guy's going to be able to talk his way out of jail, to use your example. He's going to be able to talk his way out of jail. He's going to get some spotlight time. But when they get in the fight with the hobgoblin jailers as they escape. Uh, well, you know, he's going to have a few less options than the guy that took the, you know, the archery feats or what have you. But hey, he just talked the whole group right. out of jail, <laughs> and 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 that 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 actually loops back around also to just the bigger concept of balance that we were talking about earlier. Um, one of the differences in how we are looking at balance uh, compared to how we've been working on it in the last five to ten years is in the last five to ten years, the emphasis when it came to balance was on balancing by encounter. And we are much more interested now, even though we do certainly look at encounter balance and how, how much can a character contribute in a particular battle. We're much more concerned, though, about how, how are characters balancing out over the course of an adventure. And, w- and that really changes your perspective because when you look at an adventure, and particularly, um, you know, look at a lot of typical D and D adventures, which are a mix of exploration and battle and role playing encounters. When you, from that standpoint, the person who is extremely effective in social encounters will often have a greater impact on the course of the adventure than the guy who has plus five to every sword swing. 
Right, and I, I guess I guess that's really where my question goes to. It's like you know, like, again, the jail for the adventure. Well, I'd like to think that hopefully you can avoid jail not most of the time. You might use that once in an adventure, whereas the right. combat plus five. Wow, indeed, yeah. Every time these fight, you know, yeah. I can use it five times during the fight. Right. Great. And it's just, you know, it, it, I love those social skills, but it feels like even though I love them and I seek them out, and I want to find the one that's good. It's just so much obviously, like, hey, that one, that, that plus five to combat damage. Well, how can you not? Well, that, that, again, that's where the sort of making these lateral options makes it a little bit easier because we can say things like, well, yeah, you've got a few more options with these kind of scenes, this guy's got a few more options with these kind of scenes. The other aspect to it is there's a design element there that is, I probably would never design the feat or what have you that is, this guy can get out of jail for free, right? But I, I would probably look at it and say, what kind of situation is this? Well, it's, it's a bluffing situation, or it's a diplomacy, or it's a, a pulling rank, or an influence kind of situation. Find a way to then make that adaptable across many different kinds of interaction scenes so that it's a more broadly applicable thing. Still retains that good flavor, still gives that, that player who's angling for the social interactions the thing he's seeking, but also make sure that uh, that comes into play more frequently. Because as you say, you're not going to be busting out of jail every adventure, but you're probably going to be talking to somebody every adventure, or you probably you might be trying to get something from someone every adventure, or, you know, I mean, there's there's more common elements that we sort of drill down to in the, the non-combat things. Because really, combat, and I'm sorry to keep rambling because I do that, but combat is, is a series of sort of rules, touch points, and most of those feats point at those different touch points, right? With social things and with exploration things, it's not quite as clearly defined, so we have to find those touch points elsewhere to design towards. So if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is that when, you, when you're trying to design the social ones specifically for this, you're, you're trying to actually get a little bit more vaggery so that it's not, hey, you can only use this when you're in jail right. versus you use this whenever you're Be influencing. Right. Be because from the standpoint, again, of, a, of balancing from an adventure perspective, we want to make sure that if, if this is a big piece of your character that you have picked, you sure as heck better be able to access it at least once every adventure. Thank you. Sure. Um, first of all, I want to say I, I don't envy your task in redesigning Dungeons and Dragons. It's got so much baggage behind it, so much weight, and uh, I think you guys are doing a great job with it. Especially like um, a lot Thank of the stuff that you've been putting in and incorporating the new stuff, like the advantage disadvantage system and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and I know you guys have ideas and um, suggestions flying at you all over the internet and, and probably even here at the convention and everything. At what point do you have to just say, this is not part of D&D, &D, and this is not going to be in here? What, where, where do you draw the line, I guess is what I'm, what I'm wondering, with regard to what you put into the next, next playtest packet or the final product? Well, we, we, are, we are steeped in the earlier editions, so the, the, the earlier editions are, are one component of our guiding star. Um, but also, we, we are also constantly asking ourselves, you know, is this something Conan would do? Is this something the Fellowship of the Ring would do? You know, we go back to the, the, the inspirational touch points that Gary Gygax talks about in Appendix N of, of the First Edition Dungeon Master's Guide. You know, is, is, would this show up in a Moorcock story? You know, that kind of thing. Because there has been drift over the life of D&D and... and narrative drift, and almost always when that narrative drift has occurred, it's because things have started to drift away from those narrative roots. You know, when, when it gets to a point where, oh boy, this would never show up in Conan or Middle-earth or in an H.P. Lovecraft story, and 
again, this We're is pretty broad. This is, this is, I mean, yeah, it, it does make our job easy that the game is this, again, crazy mashup of, of these different uh, narrative streams. Um, but it, yeah, it means we have a lot of rich material yeah. to draw on. Yeah, there's a spaceship and lasers and expedition carrier. Yes, so yes. It's got a pretty broad swamp to draw on. The other thing I'll say is that in general, what we're actually probably doing more than saying this isn't in the game or what have you is we're not going to focus on this right now because, like, you know, honestly, I I tend to never say never, right? I mean, it really, like, our whole philosophy is built on that idea that you're going to want to play D and D your way, and so if you want to do the exposition of the beer keep pigs campaign where we all have jetpacks and lasers and breathe fire because we're dragon or whatever, that's totally cool. It's probably not as high on our priority list right now because one of the things we're focusing on, and, and Jeremy can attest to this, is we want to make sure that we sort of hit. Uh, hit things in our, our priority order that like okay this is the most iconic we need to get this right and get it out and this you know this is a little bit further down and that's why we've done the core four classes but that doesn't mean we're not going to do things like the barbarian and you know stuff like that right it's just right. we have to focus on some things now some things later progress has to sort of roll forward I, I never want to say never but I mean like that I, I'm not joking when I say that lasers and jetpacks and stuff like that, that's in Barrier Peaks, right? Right. Might right. see that someday. It, I mean, I, I think the, the easiest way to boil down our answer is when, when we're looking at something, the question we ask ourselves is, if we took this out, would the game suddenly no longer be Dungeons and & Dragons? And, and, and so really, if, you know, if something has to be there for it to be, be D&D, those are the things we're focusing on right now. I mean, so, great example. We can't take the wizard out of Dungeons and Dragons. We can't take the fighter out. We can't take the cleric out. Um, but it's also why right now you're not seeing a focus on, say, the barbarian. Because those, you know, those of you familiar with your D&D history know the barbarian wasn't there in the beginning. Um, but the barbarian will show up. Um, it's just again, it's a matter. It's a matter of focus, and right now we are most concerned about making the most fundamental aspects of the game shine, uh, because they they form the foundation for everything else. Uh, because another thing about classes is that traditionally, all the classes other than the core four flowed from the core four. You know, so once the core four are nailed down, then everybody else can start coming into focus. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it a lot. Great. That's good to hear. Um, so I have like two main issues. I guess we'll do just one right now. That have always prevented me from saying that Dungeons & Dragons is the best game of all time. It is, but like always. Um, so I'll just have a one. First one. So there's always, you mentioned the narrative aspect of the game aspect, role-playing game. Mm -hmm. And I find that the most difficult moments of the Dungeons & Dragons table are when those two things come head to head. And a great example of this is take something very benign from third edition, fourth edition, weapon focus, right? Plus one to hit. And you say, well what does it represent? Well it represents, you know, you training through weapon, you're especially dedicated and focused with it. But no, no, it doesn't really actually mean that. It means you just chose a feat. Someone could say, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna train for a month, my elf for a year, ten years, thirty years. I spent five hundred million gold. I can't technically gain weapon focus without in some capacity somehow cheating. Um, I mean, sure, the DM can say, no, that's fine, that's awesome, go for it. Uh, yeah, I mean, the wizard, I let him fireball, well, whatever. But in some capacity, the game's narrative story side has failed to interact properly with the mechanical side, or at least in the capacity that you understand that the game is 
It's balance. It's the power tech issue. Right. Hey, I, I really want to hit this guy hard. Well, you don't have power tech. Well, uh, what do I do? I mean, other games where you can maximize fate, you know, you can just, oh, I spend fate points. It's not a cheat, but D&D's never worked with a net like that, mm -hmm. that narrative net. And so you're always left with, I have my mechanics, I have my story, or my narrative, my simulation. It, it, although how, how do you meld those all together? It, I mean, it's a great question, and it, it, it's an issue that even um, Mutants and Masterminds faces. Um, uh, Rodney and I both did, did writing for Mutants and Masterminds, yeah. actually, before we worked at Wizards of the Coast. Um, uh, it, that phenomenon is something that is at the heart of the tabletop role-playing game experience, and it is why we consider the dungeon master to be as core to the D&D experience as wizards and fighters and rogues and elves and dwarves, because it is the dungeon master who bridges that gap. Uh, the, and and one of one of I think actually the. And, and here I'm just speaking on, on my own behalf. Sure. This is my opinion. Uh, this is not the opinion of Wizards of the Coast or, um, or, or Rodney. Uh, but I think a lot of, of modern role-playing game design, either, either explicitly or through implication of how its rules are designed, have sort of given this promise that they can't deliver, that the system is, can somehow bridge, its, bridge that gap on its own that if you just have all the right rules, suddenly hard system side and narrative side will run themselves. And it, it is a promise that really can only be fulfilled given our current tech and has only been fulfilled through able dungeon mastering or in other role-playing games, game mastering. Um, it, it is that storyteller. It is the narrator um, that who weaves all of these things together and takes these things that could be budding heads and makes it so that suddenly they're in harmony. And suddenly an amazing story arises from that experience. And my group doesn't have this problem, but I, I certainly, there's a lot of players who would say that they do have this problem. And from a business perspective, too, you know, great GMs, hard to come by, um, probably even harder to create. I mean, it's nice if you could the magic DM formula and right. have it do it for you, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of players who say, oh, you know, my DM sucks, and he doesn't do this kind of thing, and from a player, uh, company perspective, you might say, boy, gee, we're relying on a great GM to really make our game sing. It, it, and it's true, we are. Um, I mean, this is, this is why we value DMs so much and why providing good DM tools, it's vital to the game, and really, again, vital to any role-playing game. Uh, because it is precisely that person that that helps turn the tabletop role-playing game into what it is. Uh, because without that, the role-playing aspect that occurs between the players and then between the players and the dungeon master, uh, it really is going to be a board game. Right. Or if you want more of a single-player experience but have narrative elements, you can go play Skyrim. Uh, but what but what D and D can give you, or or any other role playing game that has been inspired by D and D, is that magic that happens when people around the table do something that's not in the books. It's only at their table. At that moment, it's their game. It's their story, and and at that point, we are just the happy providers of tools for people to be creating magic at their tables. And 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 it's at that point where it isn't our game. It's everybody's game. Yeah, call me the eternal optimist, but I actually think there are more good DMs out there than bad DMs, and I know that that 
that we always hear, we hear the bad DM stories, but it's the same reason we hear bad news all over the news, right? It's because that's what people want to tell you about because that's what the interesting story. I mean, occasionally you get the, here's this awesome moment that happened in my campaign, but then you also run the risk of like, let me tell you about my character, right? The, <laughs> the thing about this, I think there are more good DMs out there than bad DMs, and I think that good DMs are, like, are being made all the time, right? The trick is, since we're relying so heavily on the DM to handle that kind of narrative element that we're talking about, we have to make sure that it's easy for the DM to do that kind of things. Now, that's sort of central to the philosophy of D&D Next in a way that we haven't really talked about to this point. The simplicity of the core rules is a tool in the DM's toolbox. Right? Because the simpler the core rules and the more streamlined, the easier it is for that DM to make changes and understand the ramification of those changes. Likewise, when we start talking about our rules modules and optional rules, we want to make sure that we're very clear when we provide those. Not only here's how they work mechanically, but here's the impact this is going to have on your game. Right? This is what this is going to do for your campaign. This is what you have to watch out for in your campaign when you use these optional rules, etc. So not only are we relying on the DM to bridge that gap, we're also putting every tool we can in his toolbox and teaching him how to use those tools, or at least that's the, the intended goal, so that we can do things like that situation you talked about where the elf trains for six months and you know well he can't magically get the weapon focus speed no we want to be able to say dm if you want to give the bonus speed or whatever for that do it here's the ramifications of it you're making a conscious decision to do this because that's what fits your game and i think that that philosophically that's a large difference because i think you have a generation of players from the last decade or so from third to fourth edition uh, this concept of player entitlement that I'm, as a player, I own the rules of the game. Right. And I bring them to your game. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody really owns the, the rules of the game to the table. Because again, it takes players to have to run the game just like it takes a DM to run the game too, right? What we really want to have happen is that that uh, when players want to do things that are outside of the rules, the DM has what he needs to make the judgment call to make that happen, so that both the DM and the players are getting what they want. Good luck. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a challenge. And, and but and also, when when we talk about the DM uh, shaping things and giving the DM tools, it's really it's really not because we want DMs to be these harsh judges. And, and you know, being these tyrants at their tables. No, we want we want DMs to have the tools that they need to confidently say yes. Uh, and because often often DMs say no because there is such a storm cloud of rules in front of them that they're not sure what the ramifications are going to be if they say yes. And so naturally the response is often no to be like, oh my God, I don't know what this is going to do if I say yes, so please no, let's move on. I don't want my campaign to suddenly be blown up because I said yes to this player request. Uh, and so we again want the system to be tight enough and the core system simple enough where it can be simple so that the DM has confidence uh, to make those calls and to say yes. Speaking of, speaking of DM tools to, to facilitate these things, there are a couple of iconic 4th edition innovations. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a lot, not all are good, but some, uh, in, in my mind, the swarm mechanic mm -hmm. and some version of the, um, the uh, skill challenge mechanic mm -hmm. are very, or can be, if DM well, very, very good tools to represent things like hordes of weedy monsters without the 25 attack roll problem right. uh, that, for example, certain playtest adventures may have. 
Um, and then the oh, did, did you have people who who foolishly charged into the middle of tribes? Well, well, there was the the one I'm thinking of is the giant rats, where they're not necessarily uh, a threat. Right. It's just annoying, right? right? And swarms were very good at managing that kind of, of combat. And then skill challenges, if done well, seem to be a great team tool for saying, all right, how can we finesse this issue, um, but still have player involvement, as long as it's skillfully done. It, so, it, yeah, again, as part our general philosophy is, if, if there was something in a previous edition, um, swarm rules, for example, uh, that worked really well and were a great expression of their narrative goal, there's a good chance you will see it uh, emerge in some form in the next edition. Right, we, we may just have not gotten there yet. Right? Like, yes. I, I think that's one of the things that is really tough, given that we've never really done a playtest of this scale and length before, and so there's a lot of times where we're like, you know, this is dumb, they don't have, you know, I'm going to pick on you a little bit, there's no swarm rules, right? It's like, well, we haven't gotten there yet. All right, give us give it a little time. Yeah. Um, as, right, right now you're looking through a keyhole, right. and, and there, there, there's a whole lot of game for you still to see. To be fair, we also haven't designed what's behind the door yet, so <laughs> we're actually just holding up a postcard to the yeah. people. <laughs> I promise there's something really awesome. I mean, the, 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 thing, the thing is, I mean, it's, it's funny you ask about uh, swarm rules because a month or so ago, uh, Chris Perkins, uh, Mike, and I were coming up with the swarm rules, and they are heavily inspired by what we did in fourth. Yeah, something like skill challenges are a little trickier because it was a much larger system, and uh, and, and even though skill challenges sort of evolved over the course of the years, I mean, I even ended up picking up uh, the skill challenge rules for the Saga Edition Star Wars game, uh, but and took what we learned and integrated it. But then that was a huge chapter in an entire book that was dedicated to that. So it's one of those things that, like. We want to make sure that everything gets a lot of attention. And something of that size and scale needs more attention, it needs more time. And it may be that what we want to do is look at what worked well out of that and make something new as well, right? Because not everything comes over whole cloth. Because some things worked really well, some things didn't work so well, some things were, you know, a mixed bag. And we want to make sure that we get the good part of that and the sort of philosophical nugget behind that and bring it over and interpret it in a way that works within your system. Exactly. I think one of the opportunities you have, which is always great, is to not only re replicate them, but you can take them forward. Right. Like with swarms, and you may have already done this, and so kudos to you. But some sort of banding mechanic that lets you take existing monsters and swarm them on the fly mm -hmm. would be a great addition, because that was always the one limitation. Right. So right. You have one. So. In, in the current packet, you will, you will see a nod to that approach in some of the monster traits. Take a look at the mob tactics ability, um, where you can actually have certain monsters basically give up their attack to make it so that some of their allies just have one big monster attack. So if you have, have tons of monsters, that's a way to get out of having to roll a bajillion d20s to resolve their attacks. You were talking earlier about the three pillars of D&D, the, the combat, the exploration, and the, uh, the dealing with NPCs. Mm -hmm. um, traditionally, uh, most of the rules have focused around combat. Um, but then with, fourth edition, with the fourth edition introduction of the skill talent system, which personally I love, mm -hmm. uh, you got a little bit more uh, codification of other scenarios. Uh, can we expect to see more of that in D&D &D Next, where you have 
more codified systems for exploration and for um, interaction, uh, and, and, it, and as such, uh, player options to deal with that. You, you can definitely expect to see more DM tools for running those sorts of encounters. Um, it, the, the game will probably always have a greater amount of rules density clustered around combat. Um, and part of that is because combat is, is very concrete. Right. Um, once you get into the, the, the areas of the game that have much more to do with role-playing and improvisation at the game table, we have to tread lightly with the rules we create because we want them to be tools in a group's hands, you know, tools that are going to assist the narrative, help provide direction, but we don't want to have tools that hijack the narrative or, or even worse, cause the narrative to vanish. And so we've been, we've been, uh, we have not at this point taken the skill challenge approach that we had in fourth and simply ported it over because, as Rodney said, we need to find what was the best about it and carry just that forward. Because we know one of, one of the, the issues that many groups have faced using skill challenges, as useful as they can be, because like you, I have found uh, many great uses for them in my games as I've run fourth edition. Uh, in some groups, rather than being a tool like that, they've ended up just being a sledgehammer that has you know, smashed the life out of different uh, you know, narrative scenes because rather than role-playing, the people are just rolling dice. Now, there are certain groups that like that, and that's why it is important to us to provide those tools because there are certain groups that they really don't want to role-play that much, and they would rather just make a few rolls and move on with their game. So again, we want those tools to be there, but we want to do it judiciously. Right. There's also sort of two sides to that. There's the rule side, and there's the content side. And so, like, I don't know if you've seen the playtest backend, but one of the things we've really tried to do in the background system is using our, our traits, is what we call them right now, push characters into that sort of narrative and uh, that sort of interaction exploration uh, arena a little bit more, right? So in addition to, you know, the sort of hard-coded top-level rules we you want to put things into the characters that support those different pillars. And once you've got those things in the characters, then it's the player's choice what he wants to focus on, right? Like, oh, I've got this trait that says, I'm a knight, and I can, you know, get an audience with a local ruler and stuff like that. That's now a thing that that player, if he's interested in that, can access, right? right. If that player's not interested in that, that's fine, right? That you're choosing to focus on a different aspect of the game, right? But so that's that's something that didn't require sort of a top level rules construct to inject a little bit more of that other pillar of the game into a character. I'm, I'm just curious because you were saying earlier how you were trying to make it so that characters who were not specifically combat focused could still contribute as much. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking, I'm very much looking forward to seeing how that's all going to shape up. And I, I think all of us here are really excited to see what's going to happen next. Yes. You will, you can see a, a bit of that flexibility um, already glimmering through uh, the playtest packet uh, in the spellcasters. Uh, because we have, we've returned uh, to a more traditional approach to spellcasting, 
a wizard, for instance, will have the option uh, on a particular day to prepare all non-combat spells. I mean, and that that's one of the, the wonderful bits of flexibility that's specific to that class, where the wizard on a particular day can just be, I'm not combat guy today. Now, we know he'll still be able to cast probably a spell or two at will if, if a fight breaks out. Uh, but if the wizard wants to have a day where no, he's ready just to create illusory terrain and maybe charm somebody. Um, that he can do that. Well, you know, even in like the rogue, you can already see there's a lot of exploration and skill use that is sitting in the rogue. If, right. you, if you so chose, you could be like take the rogue and take the jack of all trade specialty, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you are Mister Exploration because I can, you know, use all these crazy skills and use them better than anybody else can. Like we're already sort of angling in that direction with the non-spellcasters, just looking at what kind of options naturally fit within that. Yeah, yeah. One one of the things I love about the current version of the rogue is you could very easily take the rogue and create a character like Indiana Jones, who you know is you know knows all sorts of lore, is really good at dealing with traps and sneaking around. Yeah, he can handle himself in a fight, but like Indy, he's probably going to get punched in the face a lot, because in those movies, Indiana Jones actually spends a lot of time getting beat up. Um, uh, but, he, but he's a master at all of these other uh, skill areas, so in that way, very much a classic D&D rogue. Yeah, a few years back, I was sitting in a big room and they announced 4th edition. Everyone around was kind of going, boo, boo, no one really saw a need for it. Like the only silver lining that most of us heard around me was that they were going to have it online. Mm -hmm. They eventually had it moved mm -hmm. online. Now, fourth edition is dying, and we're going to the next. Yeah. That never really came through. Are they going to do anything like that for fifth edition? I mean, Again, uh, we uh, can't talk about future products. They kind of promised it in fourth edition. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> And you we don't not making promises? Yeah, you do not hear you do not hear us making such promises. Online tools, any of that stuff gonna be there? Or is it all gonna be because I've heard you keep talking about the books being most of these tools. Are they gonna be online tools? We we certainly want there to be. That, that's, as, that, that's as much as we can say at this time. And 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 that's that's not only because it's just you know, our, our company's policy is, as is the policy of most companies, not to talk about you know unannounced products. Um, but no, well, but that that's an example of sometimes why you don't want to do it, where you don't want to announce something before it's actually ready. Um, also, I'd like to point out, Jeremy and I just pound on keyboards and make games come out. So the digital guys are much But I mean, this, the digital guys are probably more equipped to handle questions like this than we are. So. Really? Um, we've locked them away in a basement. Well, but even even, no. even they wouldn't be able to address this question yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, but but the point I was going to make is right now our focus is on the game, the game. Yeah. Um, because because that's one reason why we also are not talking about the shape of the physical products. You know, we're not talking actually about books or box sets or anything like that. We're just talking about the game. Right. Um, and th this is also one reason why we're very careful about referring to just here are these different documents in our playtest packet. Like this is not this piece is not a piece of a player's handbook. This other piece is not a piece of the dungeon master's guide. No, these are just pieces of the Dungeons and Dragons game that will eventually find their home in actual product. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about. Um skill system and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've, I've always actually 
you know, like skills, you know, they will go way back because they're the ones that had skills. Um, you know, they make more points than anyone else. But on the other hand, the skill systems always kind of felt like what well, was added on because people kind of thought, well, there should be some kind of skill system, but that's not necessarily DD. So going back to your thing of what can we take out and it would still feel like DD, I would think that might be a place that you could. And just use the ability scores, you know, if you want to climb a wall, that's a strength check and so forth. Why do you feel the skill system is important for the core? And a little bit about what place in the game you feel that that's doing. Um, you used to, we're talking about a, a more of an open skill list, and now there's more of an idea of a fixed skill mm -hmm. list. You know, how, how is your feelings about the skill system changed as you've gone through this process? So it, it's a great question because in a year and a half ago or so, a lot of time has already passed. Um, the skill system was on the, the list of things that may or may not survive. Uh, because it hasn't, as you rightly say, it has not always been there in D&D. One of the reasons why uh, it has been present in every version of the playtest in some form is even though it has not existed in the way that we're accustomed to now because of third and fourth edition, there's always been a striving toward it in D&D. You know, even, even in the, the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide, there was this optional system of secondary skills. And then, in, and then eventually there were non-weapon proficiencies. And, and it's something that D&D has always grappled with, partly because it is a way to express things about character that go beyond the domain of class and race. You know, it's a, it's a way to say, you know, my character is an awesome sailor and has all of the skills associated with sailing or blacksmithing or, or what have you. Um, so as we have folded it into our work on the next edition, we've been mindful of its origin, really as a way of talking about your capabilities beyond class. And so because of that, you'll notice that skills are not a resolution system anymore. In third and fourth edition, Almost everything you try in the game, you try through the skill system. It, it is very rare in, in the last 10 years for you to make ability checks. You're almost always making perception checks, search checks, you know, uh, re, you know re, religious knowledge checks, that sort of thing. And you'll notice that in all of our playtest material, you are instead making intelligence checks, strength checks, uh, constitution checks, and, and so on. Uh, so we want the ability check, and have made the ability check, the core of our resolution mechanics. And if you want to, <coughs> the scrolls are another piece of the game that you could drop out, Absolutely. and the game's integrity is intact. And that's one of the reasons why we have not put resolution mechanics into the skills themselves. Because the skills themselves are really just an area of knowledge, or of proficiency in the world where you get a bonus if you make an ability check having to do with that thing. And it's a little bit of a subtle distinction between skills and ability checks, but I think it's important because it means that when, if you want to drop out the skills, you absolutely can. It means things will be a little tougher for most characters, but again, that's part of that educating the DM of how this is going to impact your game. The other part about it is it means that, and I think that it means that when we think about skills design-wise, they're a bonus. They're not 
sort of an expectation. It's a benefit you're getting. It's an extra thing you're getting. So it's not just that, like, oh, I'm competent enough at hiding. It's, no, I'm really good at hiding. Right. right? It's, it's an exceptional thing, right? Because most of our assumptions are built around the idea that you're using the ability scores and not taking into account those things as far as, of like, you know, okay, what's our scale of how high the skills go? And, okay, these stealth check DCs need to go up because blah, 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 right? It's, it's more about, like, no, okay, people are going to be making dexterity checks to hide, and then the guy that's got the stealth skill, he's really good at it, and, like, it, it's a sort of a, a different take on, on what skills do, I think. Yeah, because we, we do not assume that even if you are using the skill system that you will have many skills on your character sheet. We are, we are assuming, for the typical character, no more than three or four. Um, because, again, your character is going to be using ability scores to do things. And, and the skills represent, as Rodney says, uh, highly focused expertise in a few areas. You know, th these, are, these are a few areas where your character is just a master. And that's what skill training now represents, rather than competency. Can, we can take. Uh, yeah, we might be able to get all, through all four of you, but I think you you will be the final four. Final four. Tell you about my I've been waiting on this all day. Oh, no. oh, God, no. Let me take notes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, okay. Regarding something earlier, um, regarding the whole you know, good DMs are hard to find thing, have you guys ever considered an accreditation program? Like, 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 like a little class or like, like, like a little online thing. I pledge not to use the NPCs of Overmunch. I pledge not to insert my fetishes into the game. I pledge not to try to write a fantasy novel, you know? And then tell me all these things, mind you. Yeah. Did, did you just tell Peter to attack my demon style? Not the least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm actually moving on to a real fetish. Rodney's games are just, it's wall-to-wall -wall fetishes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, one thing I did notice in the playtest that I kind of really laud is um, is the the progression system wasn't quite so you know red queeny everything gets a plus one to everything every time you level up. Right. I, I really really like that. I'm wondering what you guys are going to do when it actually does hit like the equivalent of high level. And um, I, I, uh, secondarily, also with the with the magic progression, I'm wondering what you guys are going to be doing with higher level spells because like at, right now you you have you have your chill touch, you have your you know your your burning hands. I never really liked the idea of having like a separate spell for each of those. Why not just have a, you know, fire magic? And as you level up, you can go from burning hands to fireballs to, you know, inferno hollows. We're probably not headed too far in that direction. But one of the things we have mentioned before that I think we can still safely say is part of our philosophy is the idea that like burning hands or something like that is a pretty iconic spell. Yeah, we, don't really think, right? we want that to stay in the game, right? So that as you gain levels, you keep using burning hands. Because you've already learned how to use it as a player. It's pretty iconic. We want it to stick around. Right? I would love that. I would love to not right. have burning hands by the wayside because it's no longer good. Fireball is. Right. Well, and that's one of the things that burning hands and fireball do two very different things. We want to embrace that and make sure that there is occasionally some kind of you know, choice there between the two. Uh, as for the sort of, you know, progression of numbers and how that's going to impact how we play, I already alluded to it earlier, but I think it's actually a big uh, advantage that we have going into our discussions of high-level play that we don't expect the numbers to reach the point where we're leaving too many things behind. Because I think one of the big challenges of high-level play uh, traditionally has been that in order to 
fully support high level play. We need a whole different aspect of our monster manual, our beast series, our adventures, etc. Right. That they use, you know, these that these higher level adventures use different pieces and components because you had to because the players outstripped all the stuff that they dealt with the lower levels. Instead, now we'll have a bigger toolbox for DMs to draw on, a bigger toolbox for us to draw on with our adventures in populating our, our in populating our adventures with monsters and traps and treasures and stuff like that because we haven't left them behind quite as much. It's We use them differently, right? You'll fight 20 orcs instead of 5, right? But it's a different use of the same thing, which I think is a really, really powerful advantage we have going into to high-level play. And I think it's because of what we're talking about there with our bounded accuracy system that's possible. And I mentioned earlier that as we're working on high-level play, we are questioning all of the assumptions that the previous editions have had about high-level play. And one of those assumptions in the past was a, a linear scale where every number just, you know, yeah, kept just going up, 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 up. For us, even that is not uh, a sacred fact. Uh, because because the, the issue is as soon as you assume that, that has ramifications through the entire system, as Rodney was mentioning, where su suddenly, again, whole, whole sections of your monster manual are unusable once you hit a particular level. It also has, like, like story profit, like, just trying to design a world that can be, you know, explained by those rules results in ridiculous things. We've all read Order of the Stick, we know how silly it can get. Right. Like, for example, it's impossible to, like, you know, to hold someone hostage in D&D. It's impossible to threaten them with a crossbow in D&D because it's a first-level dude. It'll deal me one game damage, whoop de doo I mean, like, I know that's really hard to fix, but, like, you know, I, I just hope that you guys are already, like, changing the progression system, I think, is a really big step, so thank you. Thank you. Um, I have a second. So, the, um, you mentioned, kind of, I alluded to it earlier, but the, the resolution concept, and my friend over there was saying, like, well, it's a game, it still has to be a mod, an element of skill. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things that I, I think back to is this idea of in how, how much of an impact the player having skill at the game should influence their ability to, to win at the game. And what I mean by this is, We've all seen, you know, the guy is walking down the corner, you're mapping the German Dungeon Masters, describing things, and then maybe the old person guy goes, wait, wait. No, uh, they're definitely trapping this It's just, the, the, the DM kind of hesitated there for a second, there's a little bit too much description and flavor text. Meanwhile, he's playing like an into, whiz to, barbarian, who doesn't, or not even, like fighter, who has no trap finding skills at all. And then he's like, I start looking into the crevices, and I'm looking for the pressure plate. And then he goes, uh, yeah, sure. And then meanwhile, he was rogue. He's like, I focused on exploration. I'm Indiana Jones. And I didn't, he didn't even come up, show up here, because there's a guy here. But then alternatively, you go, all right, that sounds reasonable. Make a check. Yeah. You know, the guy gives, like, the Braveheart speech. <laughs> Make a charisma check. One. And you've all been at that table where everyone wants it to happen and makes mm -hmm. sense for it to happen. And the mechanic slapped me in the face with their interaction. I look in the uh, I look in the drawer. I look for the I look every crack in the wall. Make make a service check. Yeah. And then fourth edition, where it became like a sonar of just you know I detect everything in this room. So how do you how do you resolve that you know inconsistency between I want to have a skill system to allow players who aren't a 25 year veteran of Tomb of Horrors and still have to be able to find traps versus a player who's naturally charismatic or just pays attention and has a good feel for the game and allow them to be skillful at the game outside of just building a good character and kind of sending them in like a Pokemon. Our, our recommendation to DMs, and this is advice we, we've given in 3rd and 4th edition as well, is if, if a player is playing their character well, 
we do feel that should be rewarded. So if 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 the dim half orc barbarian happened to notice because his player was clever. Uh, this crack in the wall that is in fact a part of a secret door. Uh, I, if I were the DM, I, I would say congratulations, you found it. Um, and, and I don't have a problem with that, but I, I think that for the game as a whole, but a, so the how do you how do you it can no hey, these are the rules, but just ignore them. So the, the the flip side, and this is where we're addressing the issue you bring up head on, is if you take a look in the current version of the rogue, where again the rogue is the skill guy. The rogue is the guy where we don't we don't want a rogue to face something where he is supposed to have expertise, be told to make a check, and then you know as you say that the scenario where he gives the equivalent of the Braveheart speech, rolls a one, and the whole thing is just a big wah wah wah. Um, that's why the rogue has the skill mastery mechanic uh, in the current draft, uh, where the the rogue, if the rogue is doing something in an area where the rogue has expertise, the rogue cannot get a result lower than ten. Uh, and 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 in fact, the rogue, if the rogue has training in this area and the fighter has training in this area, almost always the rogue's bonus will be higher. Because that's part of what it means to be a rogue. I mean, you you are the master of various skills, many of which have nothing to do with battle and everything to do with exploration and social situations. Um, so that the issue you bring up is one that is, has very much been on our mind. Where yeah. yeah, we don't we do not want the that rolling of a one to suddenly basically invalidate the character that a person has constructed. And this is this is an issue that. Uh, very much wrapped up in the design of the rogue. I also think that what you're talking about is a playstyle issue because there are going to be people that want to play the game in a way where that description is more important than the die roll, right? And there are going to be more people that want to play the game where, you know, just because I'm charismatic doesn't mean that my character should be charismatic, therefore I should have to roll all the time. I think those are both perfectly valid playstyles, right? You, and I think those people kind of fall in the middle, honestly. But then again, we talk about extremes. I think those are two sort of extreme playstyles. In general, I think the, this is one that is best handled through addressing it, addressing the DM and basically saying, okay, DM, here's what you can do. Here's a tool in your toolbox. And that tool is, if your players do something that you think should work because they were very specific with their description, or they gave the great brave first speech or whatever, one of the tools in your toolbox is you can just make it happen, right? Now, like any carpenter, you don't have to use every tool that you own. Like, I built a rocking chair, I use every tool that I own. No, you don't do that, right? The same way with a DM, if he doesn't want to run that game, he doesn't have to, right? Or she, or whatever, right? Like, you you want to put that power in the DM's hands because it's a playstyle issue, and I, I think that we will address it mostly with, I don't, it's not really a rule even, it's just advice for the game. Right, right, and, and, and so, like, personally, I like that style of play. I like the style of play where we, I mean, it's a little more old school dungeon crawling where we walk down the room and we pour the water on the ground to see where it seeps in and, oh, that's where the pit traps are, right? I don't want to make my players roll a check. Tech football is not right. a plus two percent. Right. 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 But I know that's me personally, right? Like, I, and I know that might not be everyone here, and that's okay. Like, we should make sure that we can support both. And I can have that just by being able to play the DM trump card and say, no, you don't have to roll for that. Or vice versa, right? Like, you know what? Your character would never notice that. You're playing an intelligence to green slime level of intelligence uh, uh, half-orc barbarian. You would never notice that. And But like, that's the kind of style I want to play, right? And 
an approach I have used going all the way back to first edition is it's sort of a hybrid where if somebody is playing very cleverly, describes some you know some way they're searching the room where man they they're going to find that that trap um, or they give the equivalent of the Braveheart speech because so many of the people I have DM for over the years like to roll dice. I still have them roll, but rather than the dice determining the outcome, the dice determines the degree of success. And, and so I will, I will look at, okay, you rolled a one, but you had this fantastic description of what you're doing. So you did indeed find it, but you fell in it. You know, <laughs> congratulations. Um, you now that's that with your face. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm rarely that harsh, um, and I usually would only do that to a player where I know they would actually enjoy that kind of pratfall. Um, but but that's a that's sort of a great way of being able to have your cake and eat it too, as a game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, one of the areas that I think Wizards has sometimes struggled the past few years, uh, third and fourth edition, honestly, has been in the publication of adventures, mm -hmm. and I can see two sides of this, that with no way to know what play style a group is going to be using, that could make publishing adventures even harder, but at the same time, the simplified core looks like it would really open that up. Do you see this revitalizing Wizards publishing, really engaging adventures, or do you see that still being something that is not we, we We take adventures very seriously, and we consider them to be a core part of where we're going. Right. And, and we'll be talking more about adventures in the DM panel tomorrow morning. Okay. Yeah, I will say that we are putting a lot of work into the idea that the adventure is what drives the game, right? And I think that we've, what you said is very true, that the simplified core makes it easier for us to produce adventures that can be used in a wide variety of different ways. Now, obviously, something like the Ravenloft is clearly geared towards a more specific type of play, but... Ideally, what we'd like to see is the adventures that we'll end up producing get filtered through the core and those modules just like any other game element does. So they're like, okay, I've got my uh, my dungeon crawl adventure that plays that that can be used by the DM running the Ravenloft campaign or the Planescape campaign. They just play slightly differently. That sounds great. Thanks. Yeah. And final question. I don't know if you already have answered this by saying GM adjudication, but uh, the D20 is a pretty swingy die mm -hmm. in terms of probability, you know, and when you're working at a static DC, that's fine, but when you're doing opposed checks, suddenly, you know, the swing is the modifier, not right. the D20, and that's always been kind of a disconnect for me, because to me, the, when, you know, all other mechanics aside, I feel like D20 is D&D, <laughs> you know, and then all the other stuff adds on. But, like, in that specific circumstance, when there's, like, an opposed roll versus a check versus a DC, it falls out. And it might be too mechanical to answer now, or it might be too hand-wavy to just say, GM, take care of it. But how do you reconcile that with the condition? There is definitely more work for us to do on our contest system, um, so that's partly just more, more is to come. Um, but also the D20 has 
a slightly different role in many of our checks because of the introduction introduction of the advantage and disadvantage mechanics. Um, because because if you are in a contest with somebody and they have disadvantage on their check, suddenly things are very different. Okay. I mean, I guess this, the specific concrete but stupid example, because it never comes up, is like, you know, the arm wrestling thing, where right. the guy with like a 10 strength has only a 20% chance of, you know, failing versus the guy with the 18 strength. That should never happen. Well, and some people would say, well, yeah, but the GM should never make you roll for that the guy with the 18 strength. Yeah, and in fact, in fact, our typical DM advice is in a, in a like in an arm wrestling match, the person with the higher strength should just win. Because our, our advice to a DM is typically only introduce the D20 when there is, there is significant variation possible in the world of the game. Um, and because, because the D20 represents uh, sort of the whims of fate, environmental factors, um, it, it's used in combat because people are moving so much in combat. There are so many variables that contribute to whether or not and not only a, a sword hits, but hits soundly enough to actually deal damage. Uh, but in a case where it is simply one force against another, my recommendation is don't roll at all. Uh, just the, the, the greater force wins. Yeah, I think we're going to want to be pretty judicious with our use of contests, but I think it's still a useful tool to have. I think those kind of challenges that you're talking about pop up you know, traditionally uh, pretty, pretty rarely in D&D, right? Like, oh, the 18th strength guy can't pull the bars off the window, but oh, that ten or that eight strength wizard uh, ripped the bars right off. because uh, he rolled a twenty, really? Does that actually happen? I mean it happens occasionally. I think it's something that is is largely solved like Jeremy said by asking yourself when is it right to actually make a check, right? And uh, we've given some advice in the previous packet and I, I wouldn't be surprised to see it return when we talk about like you know, okay, if you see the 18-strength guy walk up to the door, it's okay to say you just kick it down. If you see the 8-strength wizard try and pull the bars off, it's okay to say, no, I'm sorry, you can't, just can't do that, right? I think that's, I mean, you can call it GM uh, adjudication, but really, it goes back to what Jeremy was saying earlier, like, that's the bread and butter of what makes D&D work, is having that D in there to, to sort of filter everything through. Well, uh, thank you very much, everyone, for attending. We hope, we hope you continue to enjoy the playtest, and please continue to send in your feedback. And if you have more questions, remember we are doing the seminar again on Saturday, is that right? Yes, this on, on Saturday. On Saturday.